0: Thank all of you for joining us. This is uh, exciting. We're moving into section 1.4. Our summaries every Monday have been at least uh, invigorating conversations, if not slightly confusing, and I hope somewhat helpful. Uh, The uh, conversation today is on section 1.4. And as always, I thank all of you for joining us at the Deleuze and Guatari Quarantine Collective Ongoing Reading of anti Oedipus. It has been a long morning for me, and I'm hoping to be able to dive in and really enjoy this and have some solid discussion. So please, uh, if you are inclined, I would love to have you talking. Uh, as always, you can find us on Twitter, d and uh, Also on uh, Patreon, if you like uh, supporting us. Uh, Terrence Blake said something lovely about our project here on Twitter yesterday, so I'm a little blushing and embarrassed. It's kind of nice to see that happen. So, um, otherwise, uh, the goal today is to try to get through this entire section. It is, for the most part, I think, uh, an easier read than a lot of the rest. Uh, It has a lot less of the poetic language, a lot of stuff that has to be explained. Uh, This is much more a sort of critique of the things that have come before inside of psychoanalysis and inside of uh, a few other sort of branches of that. So, Hopefully, we can get through this. With that, I'm going to go ahead and dive into the first paragraph of a materialist psychiatry. The famous hypothesis put forward by the psychiatrist G.D. Clarenbald seems well-founded. Delirium, which is by nature global and systematic, is a secondary phenomenon, a consequence of partial and local automatistic phenomena, Delirium is, in fact, characteristic of the recording that is made of the process of production of the desiring machines. And though there are syntheses and disorders, affections, that are peculiar to this recording process, as we see in paranoia and even in the paranoid forms of schizophrenia, it does not constitute an autonomous sphere, for it depends on the functioning and the breakdowns of desiring machines. Nonetheless, Clarenbaugh used the term mental automatism to designate only a thematic phenomena, echolalia, the uttering of odd sounds or sudden irrational outbursts, which he attributed to the mechanical effects or infections of intoxications. Moreover, he explained a large part of delirium in turn as an effect of automatism. As for the rest of it, the personal part, in his view it was the nature of a reaction and had to do with the character, the manifestations of which might well precede the automatism as in the paranoiac character, for instance. Hence, Clarenbaugh regarded automatism as merely a neurological mechanism in the most general sense of the word, rather than a process of economic production involving desiring machines. As for history, he was content merely to mention its innate or acquired nature. Clarenbaugh is the Feuerbach of psychiatry, in the sense in which Marx remarks, Whenever Feuerbach looks at things as a materialist, there is no history in his works. And whenever he takes history into account, he is no longer a materialist. A truly materialist psychiatry can be defined, on the contrary, by the twofold task it sets itself introducing desire into mechanism and introducing production into desire. Some just quick things here with uh, Clarin He wrote a book, I believe, of 80 automatisms, he called them. Uh, an, uh, an automatism is a. Uh, sort of uh, outburst reaction that seems to have no content in and of itself. Uh, if you've uh, worked with uh, people who are mentally ill or anything related to that, the outbursts, the the yelps, the different noises, the way people sort of react, that is, he believed, automatist, uh, which is, is an automatic reaction, uncontrollable, not part of a person's choice thing or even has no direct sign or meaning underneath it, was his his view of things um, and how he talked about it. It's what, kind of he was famous for, uh, had a few bigger automatisms, one that was named after him, I think, Clarenbaugh Syndrome. Useless background, really doesn't have much to do here. Uh, This paragraph is essentially going over the idea of uh, how he believed delirium, delirium, in fact, uh, is something that began with the personal, is how I read this paragraph, uh, that it starts with uh, the individual and moves out into society from there. Instead of, I think, uh, their their intention, as they're going to talk about, is a little bit different. Anyone else read differently here?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think they're outlining um, another example of a, a, material, a materialist psychiatry that isn't what they're doing, right? They're using it to contrast what they mean by materialist psychiatry. Uh, and I also think that it's kind of like Husserlarian in, in the, um, this example here seems to be like very based in like a naturalism. And like an atomized idea of things with beginning and ends, right? Like individual, like oh, this is an infection, and this is like a inside the person, and da, 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 rather than it's like a set of processes that that doesn't end.
2: This uh, I ran into my room to find my copy of Empiricism and Subjectivity because this opening sentence always reminds me of this passage from Empiricism and Subjectivity, uh, which if you have the uh columbia edition was on page 83 uh if the mind is manifested as a delirium it is because it is first of all and essentially madness as soon as extension becomes a principle it follows its own way and reflection follows another way the two principles which cannot destroy each other are opposed the worst is that these two principles are mutually implicated since belief in the existence of bodies essentially encompasses causality but on the other hand, the principles, insofar as they constitute the given as a system, generate the presentation of that system in the guise of a world. It follows that the choice is to be made not between one or the other of the two principles, but rather between all or nothing, between the contradiction or nothingness. We have, therefore, no choice left but betwixt a false reason and none at all. And this is the state of madness. That is why then it would be vain to hope that we could ever separate within the mind its reasons from its delirium. These are some really great points to, to play off that then too. I like
3: that too, because what Deleuze and Quadri are setting up here too is to say delirium isn't the primary aspect, right? Delirium is not production itself. Delirium is produced and does affect production, but it's not delirium itself that um that actually causes production, right? It's an effect and one that we feel very like uh, immediately, right? But it's not, the, the delirium itself is not the causal origin of these things. They say earlier on, right? Societies create their own delirium by recording the production of desire.
0: Love that. Uh, any, any questions on this section for anyone? Any last thoughts? Because I kind of want to keep charging forward. It's a bit of a long section. Make sure we get through it. There is no very great difference between false materialism and typical forms of idealism. The theory of schizophrenia is formulated in terms of three concepts that constitute its trinary schema – dissociation autism and space-time and being in the world The first of these is an explanatory concept that supposedly locates the specific dysfunction or primary deficiency. The second is an ideational concept indicating the specific nature of the effect of the disorder the delirium itself, or the complete withdrawal from the outside world. Quote, the detachment from reality accompanied by a relative or an absolute predominance of the schizophrenics in our life. End quote. The third concept is a descriptive one, discovering or rediscovering the delirious person in his own specific world. What is common to these three concepts is the fact that they all relate the problem of schizophrenia to the ego through the intermediary of the body image, The final avatar of the soul, a vague conjoining of the requirements of spiritualism and positivism. Not sure we need to necessarily go over it. Uh,
4: Can someone remind me what positivism is?
0: Ooh, that's a good one. I'm going to try to find the definition because I tend to say something really negative when asked that. I'm going to find the real one. Positivism according to google and this is the nicest way to put it Uh, it is a philosophical system that holds that every rationally justifiable assertion can be scientifically verified or is capable of logical or mathematical proof and that therefore rejects metaphysics and theism overall it is it is facts over feelings this is that is the less nice way to put it i also have more cruel ways i'm not a super big fan of positivism um but it's the idea of like that everything is fully discoverable and knowable in a An empirical way and anything that can't be should is not real and therefore not worth talking about um this paragraph ultimately uh, again as a quick summary is talking about the the parts that they see as being the sort of different parts of schizophrenia how it's talked about in the larger psychoanalytic and psychiatric communities and ultimately uh their point is that all of these ultimately come back to the idea of the body image and that the, the the issue the schizophrenia that they're talking about which is three really significantly different ways of describing it ultimately relates to this idea this concept of uh I, the easy way to say it in their terms would be the body with organs like the the body without organs the, the body image the final avatar of the soul the vague conjoining of these requirements the 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 limits that a person has whatever it may be it's a it's an interesting juxtaposition
3: yeah, I think you're right about that. I think I think that's definitely it.
0: And it's interesting, right? Because it's they're trying
3: to it's, uh, it's to like psychoanalysis or behavioralism, however you want to understand this, is understanding schizophrenia clinically here, right? Through um, a deficiency with the person, like you're saying, in relation to their body image and their ego, right? So we have like the inner life is the they're looking for sources, right? So one of the things positivism can do is, right, the reason it tries to get out of metaphysical claims, it tries to put everything into syllogisms, right, into logic. So, like, if you read uh, David Foster Wallace's um, dissertation, right, if this is what he's he's doing It He's responding to things where, like, how do you argue against the metaphysical concept? You put it into logic. So this is why I think they're starting out by saying, right, false materialism and typical forms of idealism, making that distinct, and making that, um, that comparison
0: yeah and to go back over because it's what uh, wanted chat asked and it's probably worth noting the 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 specific three things because we don't necessarily all have psychoanalytic or psychiatric backgrounds uh Kraepelin talked about dissociation as this uh when they when talking about schizophrenia as uh, literally thought splitting from itself people disso- dissociating from their own realities from uh themselves and their their mind essentially splitting that's how uh, Bleuler talked about it that the the minds of schizophrenic individuals were split. Uh, Bleuler's autism, and again, please do not like snip some weird quote of me saying this. This is me quoting Bleuler talking about uh, his diagnosis of autistic styles of schizophrenia, and this is some time ago, so a little bit's changed. Um, but it's, uh, he believed it was about, um, the desire to remain a child and not deal with the outside world and live within fantasy lands and that was the result the result was this this construction of a world that you could live in because you essentially wanted to stay a baby forever and not have to deal with the adult world um the third uh, ben swangers sort of being in the world um it for him it was about how people sort of uh instead of looking at the world how it was and shifting their motivations to that uh he believed that uh Basically, the motivations of the person shifted their world, um, which is a, is a reversal of the thing. That's why they refer to it, the third concept here, discovering and rediscovering the delirious person in his own specific world, uh, is, is a really clean way of saying that. So Those are the three that they're talking about. All of them, again, come with this idea of what the ought to be is, um, the body image, that final thing that, in one case, dissociation implies Association and association is therefore the opposing side, and so here's what you ought to be. Autism. Well, if you're not, you need to learn to be a grown-up and you need to deal with the realities of the world, and here's the realities. And then uh Ben Swanger with you know the reversal of that, saying that, well, you need to understand that you can't bend the world to your will, you need to change your will to fit the world, and here's what your will ought to be. Um again, the, the body image, the final avatar of the soul is what they're getting at here. It's the, the thing that it's is demanded of all three types of schizophrenics regardless of how they're diagnosed or thought of uh, ben swinger's uh being in the world is actually a really interesting book not super familiar with the others
3: just to make a brief point i really like your description there because what this definition of schizophrenia also does is it suggests that someone who tries to live in the inner life is schizophrenic right so we talked about like the split line this is really interesting too because you could almost read this um this definition is saying, for for, for the Klinosost, right, schizophrenia is preoccupying yourself with the internal life. And by that
0: definition, it's
3: really hard to say who's not schizophrenic then.
0: Actually, really fair point. Uh, the ego, however, is like Daddy Mommy. The schizo has long since ceased to believe in it. He is somewhere else, beyond or behind or below these problems, rather than immersed in them. And wherever he is, there are problems, insurmountable sufferings, unbearable needs. But why try to bring him back to what he has escaped from? Why set him back down amid problems that are no longer problems to him? Why mock his truth by believing that we have paid it its due by merely figuratively taking our hats off to it? There are those who will maintain that the schizo is incapable of uttering the word I, and that we must restore his ability to pronounce this hallowed word all of which the schizo sums up by saying, they're fucking me over again. Quote, I won't say anymore. I'll never utter the word again. It's just too damn stupid. Every time I hear it, I'll use the third person instead, if I happen to remember to, if it amuses them, and it won't make one bit of difference. End quote. And if he does chance to utter the word I again, that won't make any difference either. He's too far removed from these problems, too far past them. Unless there's an objection, I'm just going to continue to the next paragraph. It flows pretty nice. Uh,
3: just want to note, that's a quote from Beckett. Yes, I should have said.
0: Even Freud never... It's, uh, it's the unnamable. Even Freud never went beyond this narrow and limited conception of the ego. And what prevented him from doing so was his own tripartite formula. The Oedipal, neurotic one. Daddy, mommy, me. We may well ponder the possibility that the analytic imperialism of the Oedipus complex led Freud to rediscover and to lend all the weight of his authority to the unfortunate misapplication of the concept of autism to schizophrenia. For we must not delude ourselves. Freud doesn't like schizophrenics. He doesn't like their resistance to being oedipalized and tends to treat them more or less as animals. They mistake words for things, he says. They are apathetic, narcissistic, cut off from reality incapable of achieving transference they resemble philosophers quote an undesirable resemblance if freud didn't care for him it's really just factual um it's a, one of the parts i like about this uh section is it is pretty clear-cut and, and a little bit easier to get through if you need any footnotes anyone here who's like i don't understand freud don't hesitate we are here to support you as you read through this so literally any question there's The first time we went through this i asked a lot of stuff that i just didn't grasp so feel free uh just not no worries no one knows who you are the question has oh nope i heard a. and to make a quick comment here too one of the things i like about this
3: paragraph is you can see them playing on freud and the definition of schizophrenia as internal preoccupation right so the whole point about words being things all of a sudden you're seeing the schizophrenic not being in the internal world, right? You're seeing them very much connected with what's around them in a way that even um, the challenge is actually how Freud connects with the world, right?
0: It essentially challenges Freud completely. And it's, I mean, that's, that's a little bit of their joke here is that he just absolutely can't handle the fact that they resemble philosophers, which is an undesirable resemblance. Um, and that's a more than slightly mocking. I, I can read that with a little bit of a French. <laughs> behind it. The question as how to deal analytically with the relationship between drives, pulsions, and symptoms, between the symbol and what is symbolized, has arisen again and again. Is this relationship to be considered causal? Or is it a relationship of comprehension, a mode of expression? The question, however, has been posed too theoretically. The fact is, from the moment that we are placed within the framework of Oedipus, from the moment that we are measured in terms of Oedipus. Cards are stacked against us, and the only real relationship, that of production, has been done away with. The great discovery of psychoanalysis was that the production of desire of the productions of the unconscious. But Once Oedipus entered the picture, this discovery was soon buried beneath a new brand of idealism. The classical theater was substituted for the unconscious as a factory. Representation was substituted for the units of production of the unconscious, and an unconscious that was capable of nothing but expressing itself in myth, tragedy, dreams, was substituted for the productive unconscious. That's actually an interesting
3: point even for Jung, right? Like, does the unconscious... Okay, I gotta be careful here. But even for for those who would say, right, we understand the unconscious through the symbols that. and that, to losing water here seem to be suggesting that actually it's not even... You don't really it's not necessarily that you need the symbols, right The unconscious is actually producing you and all these other things, right so it's it's an interesting way of saying
0: there's another way of understanding this well, and and they're open with the the great thing psychoanalysis did is. It went, hey, actually desires produced like it's not uh, some spiritual thing or other thing that came prior to Freud, but really psychoanalysis was like, no, desires produced. and then at the same time it went, yeah, actually, it's produced by stuff we can't really know and we'll never know, and it's kind of hidden in this cloud of a play that goes on in our unconscious, and they just missed out on the entire concept that they were starting with. A quick takedown, and obviously, again, they're pointing in the direction that they're very much heading, which is uh, the belief that the unconscious works like a factory, that it is machinic, that it has processes, that it produces, that it's part of that process.
5: I'm wondering if they ever uh, talk about the role of the mother Uh, and all this. I mean, they mentioned the mommy-daddy triangle, me, mommy-daddy-me triangle, right? Um, So I guess where I'm coming from is I'm thinking, um, so Oedipus is basically, uh, it's kind of the effect of the father in a way, right? The father kind of does this decisive thing, the castration, and uh, that kind of forms this symbolic ego, maybe something like that. And uh, I guess in psychoanalysis, the the theory goes: if castration, if Oedipus doesn't happen, basically the child remains attached to the mother, and remains in kind of the the mother's world, the the world of the mother's desire, and uh, you know, so so sort of the mother's body, the mother's, you know, the uh, the breasts and and so on. And um, so the father is supposed to kind of bring the child out of that world into this symbolic world of basically absences. And I think, so they're rejecting that, Oedipus, right? They're saying this is just a, it's a kind of uh, imperialism of the father maybe. Um, And I'm curious, I mean, do they talk about the mother then? And is schizophrenia basically uh, about remaining in the mother's world?
0: So a couple, couple things. So they actually do quite a bit get into the, I don't want to say the mother specifically, but the relationship of how, uh, the daddy, mommy, me forces us into binary understandings of everything, including generalized castration, that women are men without a, without a phallus and, and have a lack innately, all of these things. And they critique generally across the board, the entire concept of of bi-univocalizing uh the reality of the world that there's no such thing as daddy or mommy that that forces us into very specific tranches the overall the overall way that they talk about schizophrenia is is that what oedipus does is it forces everyone kind of involved to this weird place of bi-univocalization and here it's as they say uh, the moment we are placed within the framework of oedipus the cards are stacked against us Uh, The only real relationship we have, which is that of production, has been removed. Instead, now we have relation. Everything is a relationship and a triangulation between myself, daddy, and mommy. I exist inside of this. And the only options, uh, as we talked about yesterday in the paralogisms, um, the only option I have ultimately, if I've been edipolized or even been dealing with a psychoanalyst, is to either allow myself to become fully edipolized, understand my place in a triangulation with my mother and father. Or to be stuck inside of the family forever, which leads to many, 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 many neuroses. Uh, this was kind of the original idea. And they're looking at it like, no, there's there's generalized production, and now you've just completely removed it, sort of symbolized it, and added signifiers to it that completely gels and gums up the works. And you've fucked whoever you're really talking with. You're screwing that person by forcing them to say, I and doing so in a place that triangulates them inside of the Oedipal complex. Um, then the next paragraph actually is about how they look at schizophrenia versus uh, such a triangulation. Uh, so I, I will get into that in a second, but that's a very short version here. And I'm sure um, someone else has thoughts because they get into the idea of daddy, mommy and relationship with the mom in a little bit, quite a bit.
5: Yeah, that was helpful. Yeah. I mean, I'm still thinking uh, I'm still curious about um I guess what I'm thinking about, I don't want to push this too far, but like from, from the psychoanalytic side, you know, the Licanian or the Freudian might say, you know, if you don't do Oedipus, you're going to, you're basically left in the dyad of me and mommy, right? And I guess maybe this is part of the issue, right? For the psychoanalyst, there is an original dyad. There's no like, there's no state that the parent is not in, right? And so it's, so the the choice is either it's going to be me and mom or dad's going to come in and it's going to be a threesome, right? A a triangle. And the Oedipal is going to, the Oedipal, you know, complex is going to help me sort of get into the symbolic order. And I guess they're, they're probably going to challenge the point about uh, the dyad to begin with.
3: Yeah. Because I think for Deleuze and Gwadri, they're, they're not going to recognize that that's even taking place in the it's not necessarily happening in the first place, right? The whole—if you presuppose the edible thing is happening, then yeah, you can follow
0: that. But it's not necessarily there in the first place. No, it's a—it's a—it's a really interesting when when we start getting into it. And I know there—I mean, there's an entire, I think, all of chapter two is really about this and how editalization functions and all of this. We're going to be getting into that, but it's absolutely where the really interesting stuff comes when they start talking about this, because we're talking about, you know, not only were they deeply uh, inspired by, but also hypercritical of the con, and obviously Freud to an extent, but there's, you know, Melanie Klein and dozens of other uh, psychoanalysts who really piled on that they really talk about too, as as part of sort of their process of understanding that uh, they, in and, and their view that, you know, edipalization is this thing that, that we try to do to people that forces a very particular worldview and the moment it's introduced, it's a naturalized hierarchy. That either we're saying, if you don't do this, you're lost forever, but if you do do this, you're completely fucked. So have fun, buddy. Is kind of the the. It's a. I mean, they don't put it like that, but that's kind of where they end up. It's pretty. It's it's going to be worth getting to. Um, but uh, to continue moving on, any other comments or questions on this uh, paragraph? A little bit. Uh, Kagan asks, what do they mean by a relationship of comprehension between drives and sim- symptoms? Oh, at the beginning of the paragraph, uh, the question is how to deal analytically with the relationship between drives and symptoms, between the symbol and what is symbolized, has arisen again and again. Is this to be causal, a relationship of comprehension, a mode of expression? They have a, a materialist view of this, and this is where we start talking about the, the difference between oedipalization, which is drives and symptoms, you have this neuroses, you haven't been properly edipalized, is very short version of how Freud would look at it, very short version, I'm sorry, anyone here who's very well read. Um, and they're saying, look, that's not the case. You're not actually looking at the causal sort of nature or how these work together. The, the symptoms and how they take place is, is part of a process of actual production, and if we can find out how this is produced... It's a very different beast, rather than just saying it's part of this edipalization uh, process. I think Ken, is that close, Jack? So Ken's, um, Ken's busy. I know. Being I being supportive of his partner. So
3: um, I'll say, yeah, I think you're you're, I think you're onto it. Absolutely, because this is a methodological point, right? So, uh, how to deal with the relationship between drives and symptoms, between the symbol and what is symbolized, right? You can see they're talking about. Um, at least I read that as they're talking about uh, psychoanalysis and analytic psychology, right? So Jungian psychology, and they're setting up to say that they're trying to understand what the relationship is here, right? This opens up questions about: is there a causal relationship, one of comprehension, right? How does the symbol and the uh, the symbolized actually relate to each other? Um, but they're saying that. When you introduce something like Oedipus to these questions, we can't, we're we're answering them through something that's kind of presupposed uh, altogether, right? So you're putting the questions into a a framework to get an answer, right? Then they move into saying um, the major problem with doing this is that we're now treating the unconscious in a way that um, is, they're going to say later it's paralogistic that we talked about yesterday, but they're saying, What you what you do with this methodology um, is that you get away from the unconscious uh, as the point of inquiry, right? Because your point of inquiry is not becoming the framework of Oedipus. So you're getting outside of the unconscious and making it peripheral to a new central point or to a new triangle.
0: Every time that the problem of schizophrenia is explained in terms of the ego, all we can do is sample a supposed essence or a presumed specific nature of the schizo, Regardless of whether we do so with love and pity, or disgustedly spit out the mouthful we have tasted, we have sampled him once as a dissociated ego, another time as an ego cut off from the world, and yet again, most temptingly, as an ego that had not ceased to be, who was there in the most specific way, but in his very own world, though he might reveal himself to a clever psychiatrist, a sympathetic super-observer, in short, a phenomenologist. Let us remember once again one of Marx's caveats. We cannot tell from the mere taste of wheat who grew it. The product gives us no hint as to the system and the relations of production. The product appears to be all the more specific, incredibly specific, and readily describable. The more closely the theoretician relates it to ideal forms of causation, comprehension, or expression, rather than the real process of production on which it depends. The schizophrenic appears all the more specific and recognizable as a distinct personality if the process is halted, or if it is made an end and a goal in itself, or if it is allowed to go on and on endlessly in a void, so as to provoke the horror of extremity wherein the soul and body ultimately perish. The autist Krippelin's celebrated terminal state, but the moment that one describes on the contrary, the material process of production, the specificity of the product tends to evaporate while at the same time the possibility of another outcome, another end result of the process, appears. Before being a mental state of the schizophrenic who has made himself into an artificial person through autism, schizophrenia is the process of the production of desire and desiring machines. How does one get from one to the other, and is this transition inevitable? This remains the crucial question. Carl Jaspers has given us precious insights, on this point and so many others, because his idealism was remarkably atypical. Contrasting the concept of process with those of reaction formation or development of the personality, he views process as a rupture or intrusion, having nothing to do with an imaginary relationship with the ego. Rather, it is a relationship with the demoniacal in nature. The one thing Jaspers failed to do was to process as material, economic reality, as the process of production, wherein nature equals industry, nature equals history.
3: So to kick it off, then, to expand on the last point I made, you, you see what they're talking about now even further in terms of, like, the causation and that, right? These questions are taking us away from the unconscious as productive. We're looking at the product and not looking at how it's produced. So this would be like, they give the example wheat, right? Or any product, right? I have a sandwich. Well, where did all this stuff come from? How was the sandwich produced? So how did it get here? Distribution, right, for my consumption. You can see the process of production here. And the same way, then I assemble the sandwich? Isn't there a process of production right therein? You know, there's all these different relationships that were, at least for Deleuze and Watery here, that get kind of um, obfuscated by taking these questions in a different direction, right? They, what they call like ideal causality in that right how should it have been as opposed to how did it happen
6: uh i just wanted to make one point um so for psychoanalysis uh it does seem like the unconscious is produced um but the way they say it is produced almost makes uh patriarchy a necessity um with the Stuff that comes from Toto, uh, Totem and Taboo, and uh, Lacan's uh, sexuation graphs, um, they both uh presuppose a a with withoutness of a uh signifier, which is the um phallus, um, and that. Both sides of sexuation, whether that's masculine or feminine, are uh, both defined by this with withoutness, um, and this is something I wish I would have remembered yesterday. That uh, that the lack that Lacan is concerned with is a presence of lack, but the way that they say the way that the edible unconscious is produced. Necessitates a certain history. It seems to me it, it, it would just keep on producing that history. And and there's a there's a thing in there about multiplicity that I'm having a hard time remembering.
0: Um, but I'll come back to that later. So I don't just keep ranting. And I think one of the lines here that I really like that they're pulling from Marx uh, is one of the best Marx lines. Uh, we cannot tell from the taste of the wheat who grew it. The the nature of production and the nature of uh, commodification, the nature of this process, uh, becomes uh, alienated from the entire setup, and so we can't simply go to the end process and go, "Oh, excellent! I understand how everything came to be." Instead, we have to really spend time and study, in and, and in their terms, the you know, phenomenologist as part of it, um, the the ability for us to actually go through and understand the process that the entire thing was made, instead of simply looking at the end product, which is essentially their critique of what they've been talking about so far. People look at the end product, there's, there's different types of schizos, different types of setups, at no point do they talk about, well, what produces their desire or their interactions in this way? How is the process that this came about? Instead, they look at the final ending and go, oh, well, this is where they've ended, here's where they're supposed to be. Excellent, we've figured it out, which is not how it really works.
3: I, I agree with all that, but uh, they're actually criticizing phenomenology here. Because it goes straight to the ego, right? Well, I'm, I'm shortcutting a lot here, but because it, they're, they're criticizing phenomenology in a sense, right? Though he might reveal himself to be a clever psychiatrist, a sympathetic super observer, and short a phenomenologist.
1: Yes, it's
0: a critique. I misspoke. Sorry. Yes. Fair.
1: Yeah, I, I think the, what they're breaking down here is that there's a necessary distinction that that's made when you when you say like the being in the world, right? Being in the world, like Dasein. And they're like breaking down that, that distinction.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. Because one of the, one of the moves they're making, right? And like, this is something like Foucault and others are doing, right? Is if you, if we stay with the phenomenological, right? If we stay with kind of like, I mean, I'm short a lot here, but like lived experience, consciousness, like active choice and everything, then it's going to be very difficult to talk about the unconscious as producing you, right? To, you know, there is a lot of, um, there is that criticism of phenomenology here. Foucault talks about this and truth and subjectivity, right? The, the transcendence of the ego was philosophy's task par excellence at this time. Everybody was focusing on how the individual can make meaning. They weren't talking about the individual having even been produced, just that the individual has this kind of agency,
0: To a certain degree, the traditional logic of desire is all wrong from the very outset, from the very first step that the Platonic logic of desire forces us to take, making us choose between production and acquisition. From the moment that we place desire on the side of acquisition, we make desire an idealistic, dialectical or nihilistic, conception, which causes us to look upon it as primarily a lack, a lack of an object, a lack of the real object. It is true that the other side, the production side, has not been entirely ignored. Kant, for instance, must be credited with effecting a critical revolution as regards the theory of desire, by attributing to it, quote, the faculty of being, through its representations, the cause of the reality of the objects of the representations, end quote. But it is not by chance that Kant chooses superstitious beliefs, hallucinations, and fantasies as illustrations of this definition of desire. As Kant would have it, we are well aware that the real object can be produced only by an external causality and external mechanisms. Nonetheless, this knowledge does not prevent us from believing in the intrinsic power of desire to create its own object, if only in an unreal, hallucinatory, or delirious form, or from representing this causality as stemming from within desire itself. The reality of the object, insofar as it is produced by desire, is thus a psychic reality, Hence it can be said that Kant's critical revolution changes nothing essential. This way of conceiving of productivity does not question the validity of the classical conception of desire as a lack. Rather, it uses this conception as a support and buttress and merely examines its implications more carefully. I'll take a crack at this one, try and make it simple. Uh, The traditional logic of why we want the things we want, especially within psychoanalysis uh, early on, and kind of a lot of strains of it still, but even from the beginning of philosophy is the idea that the thing is the thing we want that desire comes into being only because i need i want a water uh, or because i want a car or a attractive wife or a family or a white picket fence that that's where desire exists it's it's about that the, the object uh and they're saying no it's a, Actually, we need to think about it as though desire itself is the thing that is produced. And then at some point we attach it to these other things. I, that's how I would read this. They talk about Kant because Kant kind of started to try this reversal and talk about the production of desire and why desire is made. But he still did it with the object and the goal ultimately in mind, that there's always a goal of desire. Desire wants a thing always.
3: I think that's about right, because that, that's exactly right. If If desire comes from the object, right, then desire is already being, you're mistaking desire as having been produced by the object and desire not being there in any meaningful relationship uh, to begin with, right? So at that level, for them, right, you have a really big problem because they're going to advocate for like kind of reciprocal determinism, right? Desiring production and partial objects working side by side, not in like the, not in the relationship of desire causes us to want an object or an object causes us to want desire right they're getting out of that model to do a different methodology
0: yeah and it's and the critique is as they said earlier like from Marx, it's uh, when you when you when you taste desire you can't tell where it was made or what made it it's a uh, you see a car that you really want is it that you saw the car and oh yeah, no i saw the car and i want that car and when i saw the car desire was created it's like no you, you can't because when you taste desire, you can't tell what what produced it. To say it in a shitty way.
5: Yeah, just a quick. Uh, so, would we say that desire itself is produced by the unconscious, or is desire the production of, um, you know, something else? Like, is desire the process, or is it somehow like a product that the unconscious produces?
0: Um, so I. I mean, this, it's a very complicated answer. I think the easiest answer is actually just yes, uh, that the unconscious, uh, the machinic unconscious, through the three syntheses, both produces desire as well as the connections and the act of desire itself produces desire, the connections made. It's kind of the first synthesis, is connections are actually the production of desire as well as the, uh, the aiming of it, the connection that makes it. So
3: there's actually a term for this that, I've I've discovered, having read some of Watery now, there's reciprocal determinism. Yes. So des- desiring production, the synthesis, all of this, d- there's no unconscious without this. It's all reciprocatively, reciprocatively deterministic. So it's not a cause and effect. Desire doesn't cause all of this to happen, right? It's not the origin point par excellence or whatever. It's not like a big bang. as that all of this is mutually contingent in relation to each other.
0: This uh, is continued into the next paragraph. I'm going to go ahead and read that. We will get through and probably have more questions. In point of fact, if desire is the lack of the real object, its very nature as a real entity depends on an essence of lack that produces the fantasized object. Desire, thus conceived of as production, though merely the production of fantasies, has been explained perfectly by psychoanalysis. On the very lowest level of interpretation, this means that the real object the desire lacks is related to an extrinsic natural or social production, whereas desire intrinsically produces an imaginary object that functions as a double of reality, as though there were a dreamed-of object behind every real object, or a mental production behind all real productions. This conception does not necessarily compel psychoanalysis to engage in a study of gadgets and markets in the form of an utterly dreary and dull psychoanalysis of the object. Psychoanalytic studies of packages of noodles, cars, or thingamajigs. But even when the fantasy is interpreted in depth not simply as an object, but as a specific machine that brings desire itself front and center, this machine is merely theatrical, and the complementarity of what it sets apart still remains. It is now need that is defined in terms of a relative lack and determined by its own object, whereas desire is regarded as what produces the fantasy and produces itself by detaching itself from the object, though at the same time it intensifies the lack by making it absolute, an incurable insufficiency of being, an inability to be that is life itself. Hence, the presentation of desire as something supported by needs. Well, these needs and their relationship to the object or something that is lacking or missing continue to be the basis of the productivity of desire, theory of an underlying support. In a word, when the theoretician reduces desiring production to a production of fantasy, he is content to exploit to the fullest the idealist principle that defines desire as a lack, rather than a process of production, of industrial production. Clement Rosset puts it very well. Every time the emphasis is put on a lack that desire supposedly suffers from as a way of defining its object, quote, the world acquires as its double some, sort of, some other sort of world in accordance with the following line of argument. There is an object that desire feels the lack of. Hence the world does not contain each and every object that exists. There is at least one object missing, the one that desire feels the lack of. Hence, there exists some other place that contains the key to desire missing in this world. End quote.
3: I guess that's uh, Clement Rosé, lagit de For anyone looking for the footnotes. All
0: right, I'll take a crack at this one. Unless anyone wants to take a crack at it. Because this is a fun one, and I'm, I feel like Ken would want to because this is really basically them saying, Hey, Lacan! <laughs> Or, hey, Zizek, depending on the uh, time frame and who you're talking about. Not all your homies hate Zizek, Alyosha. I adore Zizek still. Despite how he shits on Deluxe. Um One of the problems they, they're talking about here is the the creation of lack, the creation of how desire works inside of psychoanalysis, which, uh, as he said, they've, they've explained uh, production of fantasies desire perfectly within their own set of rules. Uh, and Lacan's sort of lack and the concept of lack that Um, the there is uh, an emptiness inside of us a black hole of need that we can't fill and uh, with that when we see an object uh, it's not so much that we desire that object but that uh, there is almost a mirror object produced inside of our mind inside of some other plane that we don't have and we we become very acutely aware that we do not have it and that lack that not having it is what drives us to want the thing uh as, as they go into, the, the problem with this ultimately is that it basically means that there's this entire other plane on top of all the symbology that psychoanalysis has that now exists for every object that a person might perceive and that one might feel the lack of. There's always this other place that maintains the keys to all of this desire. There's a bit of an issue with all of that because it doesn't really allow for production in the ways that they're talking about and uh, the connections that they think need to start happening to discover sort of what the causes of things ultimately are. Um, And again, they're pushing towards, as they said at the beginning, a very materialist psychiatry. And we are now at the point with what we're talking about, I don't think anyone would argue that the idea of a fantasy car that mirrors the car that I actually want existing somewhere is a materialist conception. Just... My thoughts, maybe someone would argue differently.
3: No, I think you're really on to it, and that to to play off your what you're saying there, right? There move in the middle of this analysis of um, whether it's the con or psychoanalysis, uh, I'll leave it up to whoever's listening to uh, decide there. But however it is, if we start thinking about this and we apply the material psychiatry, just psychiatry to that to that methodology, right? One of the critical aspects we can see here. Is that that very methodology has a productivity like you i think you began by saying right and it is the production of these kind of subjects right not just the production of lack through the um through like the, the bad metaphysics right but it also produces or at least it can produce um, subjectivities in that sense subjects taking this on so it, it's not just the methodology right it has it does stuff it, it, it is in of itself machinic, it produces.
0: Yeah, The uh, uh, Remke asks, uh, is there some sort of limit of desire when, for instance, the lacking object is never found or is desire a constant? Uh, to Deleuze and Guattari, lack is not something that is produced within the unconscious. Uh, it Lack is something that very much exists inside of their sort of conception of uh, schizoanalysis and... and you know how these things work but uh they're talking very much uh you know opposite to uh Freud or Lacan specifically I think a lot of this where the sort of nature of Lacan's entire psychoanalytic you know work is the idea of lack and how lack operates in an unconscious way as sort of better better or worse words a part of you that you cannot you never will get rid of this lack exists and that's what kind of gives you drives and other things their argument is no no it's not and it's not at that point it's not consistent now lack can be something we create later on they talk about how we may be introduced to lack or have it forced upon us but it's not something that is part of that process instead the reality is desire is itself produced in a materialist way through desiring machines that our unconscious is basically constantly producing desire and not so much uh, the lack not the lack part Uh, desire is production production is desire uh, is a and I would say this is uh, to go back to their first paragraph, uh, the way that they talk about uh, schizo schizos. Uh, their big point here is that this does not uh, lack is something and desire is something in psychoanalysis that starts outside of you, outside of your body, outside of the ego and that the ego has it pulled onto them. Lacan rightfully critiqued and said, no, that's, that's insane. We actually have uh, lack inside of us. And they're kind of doing a double critique here where they're saying, look, it's absolutely absurd that we have this idea of uh, lack being produced and desire being produced outside of us. Instead, we need to return it to uh, really where it's created and really where it starts, and that's within the unconscious. And for lack, they're like, lack isn't a thing, and here's how lack works. And as they talk about uh, in here, uh, lack itself doesn't allow for a materialist uh, psychoanalysis and doesn't allow for a materialist sort of unconscious uh, reading as they talk about in the next paragraph, and it's a long paragraph, so I won't dive into fully, but um, if desire produces, its product is real. To them, this is about defining that materialist uh, way of looking at all these things.
3: Yeah, and to that point, this goes back to what we were saying about desire isn't contingent on the object, right? It's not caused by the object any more than desire causes the object. It's, It's mutually contingent, right? we don't have that kind of causal relationship here to, to make that kind of argument. Um, the other thing is, too, to that point about the world and that, right, we also want to understand this phenomenological point, too, because for Deleuze and Guattari, right, it's a, they're not trying to put everything back into the the subject or the individual, right? They're not making that point to say that, um, right, it's not like the Sartrean move where you've got to create your own meaning or you've got to create your own desires that's not where they're going with this
0: and i would uh add also i'm just going to parrot webcam parrot because he's not speaking but it's 100 percent the right way to talk about it uh to them also lack is a product of desire rather than the other way around and they're going to get into that uh, i said completely great way to put it um again uh classic psychoanalysis is that we have lack and that causes desire i see a car i don't have i want it lack is what caused the desire it's a very short shitty way of saying it the con sort of revolutionized that and changed that but they're like look no no desire is where it starts it's not that you see an object and that creates lack it's you have these desires and in their hyper complex interactions at some point they can produce lack down the road as part of an assemblage but it's not something that's sort of innate and part of that setup i will continue to the next it's a does someone have the actual book in front of them? Because my PDF has this as like a three-page paragraph. I just want to make sure that it's not broken again because this happens to me a lot.
3: Are you at, if desire produces, yes. it's product real, right?
0: Yeah. It's okay, just...
3: it ends for me on page 27. Okay. Uh, last sentences, but rather the objectivity of man, the object the objective being of man for whom to desire is to produce, to produce within the realm of the real. Paragraph break. I got it. I got it. Thank
0: you. I will read to that point. Excellent. My PDF has that as three pages. I'm not interested. All right. Uh, If desire produces its product is real. If desire is productive, it can be productive only in the real world and can produce only reality. Desire is the set of passive syntheses that engineer partial objects, flows, bodies, and that function as units of production. The real is the end product, the result of the passive synthesis of desire as auto-production of the unconscious. Desire does not lack anything. It does not lack its object. It is, rather, the subject that is missing in desire, or desire that lacks a fixed subject. There is no fixed subject unless there is repression. Desire and its object are one and the same thing, the machine as a machine of a machine, Desire is a machine, and the object of desire is another machine connected to it, hence the product is something removed or deducted from the process of producing. Between the act of producing and the product, something becomes detached, thus giving the vagabond nomad subject a residuum. The objective being of desire is the real in and of itself. There is no particular form of existence that could be labeled psychic reality. As Marx notes, What exists, in fact, is not lack, but passion, as a natural and sensuous object. Desire is not bolstered by needs, but rather the contrary. Needs are derived from desire. They are counter-products within the real that desire produces. Lack is a counter-effect of desire. It is deposited, distributed, vacualized within a real that is natural and social. Desire always remains in close touch with the conditions of objective existence. It embraces them and follows them, shifts when they shift, and does not outlive them. For that reason, it is so often because becomes the desire to die, whereas need is a measure of the withdrawal of a subject that has lost its desire at the same time that it loses the passive synthesis of these conditions. This is precisely the significance of need as a search in a void hunting about, trying to capture or become a parasite of passive syntheses in whatever vague world they may happen to exist in. It is no use saying, we are not green plants. We have long since been unable to synthesize chlorophyll, so it's necessary to eat. Desire then becomes this abject fear of lacking something. But it should be noted that this is not a phrase uttered by the poor or the dispossessed. On the contrary, Such people know they are close to grass, almost akin to it, and that desire needs very few things, not those leftovers that chance to come their way, but the very things that are continually taken from them, and that what is missing is not things a subject feels the lack of somewhere deep down inside himself, but rather the objectivity of man, the objective being of man, for whom to desire is to produce, to produce within the realm of the real." We'll read the uh, footnote uh, that they have here with the uh, comment of the objective being of desire is the real in and of itself. Footnote. Lacan's admirable theory of desire appears to us to have two poles. One related to the petite object A as a desiring machine, which defines desire in terms of a real production, thus going beyond both any idea of need and any idea of fantasy. And the other related to the great other, as a signifier, which reintroduces a notion of lack. In Serge Leclerc's article, not going to say it, uh, the oscillation between these two poles can be seen quite clearly. And if anyone kind of familiar with uh, Lacan, even in a basic way, I think, can also see that as well. Probably one of my favorite paragraphs in the book, uh, because it is... They have a thesis. I think this is it. I think that's what I even said uh, like nine months ago when we were reading this. This just is a wonderful paragraph that is their thesis. A couple things to go over. Um, The line in here that is just great. uh, We do not eat green plants. We have long since been unable to synthesize chlorophyll, so it's necessary to eat. Is uh, him play-acting with a a schizo who believes himself to be a plant and needs chlorophyll. They have described that and explained referred to this case a couple times earlier in the book and they're saying to them it's it's not so much uh that uh you say to them oh uh, i'll work within the world of rules that you have since you believe you are a plant creature who has the ability to chlorophyll and to uh have these things happen um instead what i'd like to do is i'd like to spend time and uh then teach you that you actually have a great lack inside of you and teach you to fear teach you to be scared within the world that you've created that they, they they're not a fan of this to say the least i i just really like this paragraph yes 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 yes
6: so they aren't saying that that oedipus doesn't work right so i don't i don't, I don't know if they're saying that like object a isn't produced through the discourse of a master and a subject supposed to know the truth of your desire and all of this stuff. It, it just it sounds like they're saying that it doesn't have to be this way, and that what psychoanalysis does is approach every single person as if they either are edipalized or are to be edipalized. Cause that's where I get sort of confused here is that I don't know if they're saying that this problem of authority that, that psychoanalysis points to is like wrong or doesn't work. It just sounds like that it, it can be this other way, this materialistic way where uh, you have all these desiring machines and it's not that your desire has to be produced by uh, a, a master signifier, which enslaves all your knowledge, and so on and so forth, and then the excess product is an object a. I
3: I think you're I think you're on to it. Yeah. So what they're doing here is they're taking Lacan's i what appears to be Lacan's ideas. At least they're talking about the object a and the big other, right? And they're putting it into their framework to say that. Um, Right, because they're trying to understand here not just Oedipus, but how lack is produced and the how lack is in and of itself productive. Right. So when we're talking about the paralogisms, it's not simply that they just don't exist. Right. They have a re- they are real, and they they do have a um, a way of uh, affecting production and reproduction. This is actually what makes them a problem at first. But if they weren't real, we would just be oh cool, uh, life goes on. But it's not that simple, unfortunately. So. By placing the object A and the big other in this polarity to understand them, right? By looking at it through this methodology, what they're getting at is that uh, because desire is in, is all together caught up in the real and everything, right? Part of the criticism I see of the object A here would be that if we take it as a machine and we take desire as part of the real, as they're doing it here, there's it, I, don't, I don't think you can actually say then that we don't ever get to the real, right? because all of this is happening in the real and it's productive. Now the, it's happening in the unconscious right through these desire machines and everything, but it's, um, it's not as though it's productively happening, um, in a manner that is just divorced from us, right. Or that we can't, that has no bear, uh, has no relationship with us in that direct
6: sense. Yeah. Okay. So there's the major difference is that. Um so, uh, so the barred other um is effective, but f- for Lacan is effective uh in so far it's the as it's the other's desire that that I don't know, uh woman is re- in relationship to, but man isn't. And but the, the hang-up is that you can have no knowledge of it. And it sounds like Deleuze and Guaderie are saying that you can have a knowledge of the real.
3: Right, so like the the criticism here would be that if the object day is a desiring machine, right, it's producing in the real, and we're already in the real, right. So this is all you know. It's all present in that sense. It's not something we can't. It's not something apart from us in that way. So like when they say, um, two poles, one related to small object day is a desiring machine, which defines desire in terms of a real production, thus going beyond both any need. of, any idea of need and any idea of fantasy and the other related to the great other as a signifier, which reintroduces a certain notion of lack. They're saying that what Lacan's theory does is it actually under their metaphysics rights so under the syllogisms Lacan's theory is actually using the object a to produce something, right? And it's producing something that doesn't need um, any idea of necessity, right? As a, as a source or fantasy as a source. This is um, mediated by the other pole, the great other, as a signifier, right? As a, a, um, uh, a kind of marking that affects and uh, this relationship of production, right? So this is where you have like a kind of like a super-egoization happening. And ultimately, in this way, right, with the production of the object A here, actually producing things as a machine and the big other affecting it, what the big other does is reintroduce the notion of lack actually take us out of um, the real productivity of the machinic here? Thank you. That was an awesome question.
5: So this is making me think of um, uh, this point that Lacan harps on a lot. And it's the point that we are born um, kind of underdeveloped. You know, unlike other animals, other animals, they're born... And they kind of have the full package like they come out of the womb and are ready to sort of prance around for the most part right uh and you know instinct really does the job for them to a large large extent and with us it's really not the case right so we're born and we're kind of um, incomplete in a radical way and you know we need a lot of nurturing we need a lot of uh, you know, we have this long gestation period and long upbringing to kind of basically even learn basic survival skills, right? So this is, I think, Lacan, you know, makes this point to show, um, in a sense, I think what, what he's saying is that's kind of the source of lack. Like, we are radically uh, disintegrated. And um, and we don't really fit with our environment. That, that takes a lot of work. Uh, and... What I'm kind of reading here is uh, the losing Guattari seem to think that's not really the case. There is this kind of like natural fit between who we are, our desires, and kind of the, the surrounding environment. And um, I guess I have my doubts about that. I mean, I can see in a highly organized, you know, the Paris of the 1960s. Yeah, that's, that may be true. Uh, the machine is, is working very smoothly. But that machine, you know, um, has a long history, and it comes through a lot of failure often. You know, so, um, yeah, but I see kind of, like, this seems to be a key kind of opposition between the two, right? The key point of disagreement, like, are we kind of originally, it seems like they're saying there's some kind of fit. And it's reminding me there is this notion the Stoics uh, use um i think it's uh, oikyo- oikiosis or something along those lines which is a kind of natural fit of the organism and its environment
1: i i would say even the notion of fitting into your environment is kind of like a meaningless suggestion for uh de and guattari like this uh the separation between being and the world uh doesn't really make any sense right because you're uh In order to even have any understanding of the world to begin with, you're like applying your structure, like you're cutting shapes out of the one substance in order to even uh, come to conclusions like that at all.
5: Yeah, I guess, um, I mean, I can see that maybe in a kind of ontological sense. Um, I guess the kind of experience that I think Žižek especially makes a lot of this and like the people sort of in his crew there, you know, uh, the Slovenian school, they talk about failure a lot. And failure is a pretty consistent human experience. And uh, I'm reading the Lacanian tradition is taking that seriously, right? And saying, you know, there's something to failure that's kind of inherent, you know, and others will talk about, I mean, you know, you have the the the, the notion of thrownness, right? We're thrown in the world. Um, or even, I mean, religious in, in theology, you have original sin. And um and it's interesting, I think, what Deleuze and Guitari are saying, just to kind of basically echo the last thing that was said, that uh, they seem to think failure is is not really the thing that matters. Like it's not a that's not the primary experience. The primary experience is actually a kind of smooth kind of uh connection with the world.
7: Can I, wow. so I I don't think that they would say it's smooth, Al Dreams. I would say in fact there's a whole bit about them saying Desire only works by breaking down. That's how desiring machines work. So I, I think, in if anything, they're almost taking up that notion of failure in the sense of you know connect, connections are being made, and a lot of those connections don't succeed. But that is how think you know things accrue and build up, and surfaces are created. So I think I agree with whoever it was who spoke just previously that it's if you think about it in terms of fitting into the world or it's a bit confusing because for them, it's kind of all being produced simultaneously, just at different levels of scope, kind of whether you look at it from the realm of like super macro political, like molar things or molecular things with, you know, subjects and stuff. So I would tend to think this would actually be a great celebration of failure in, in a sense, because what they're talking about is rather than needing to always find a way for desire to resolve itself and to reach an equilibrium of some kind you know it's okay for dead connections to be made because they they just happen all the time
1: you know i mean we can take let's let's like take this example of failure right and take it to its like uh delusian guatarian conclusion so what what is like how can you come to any sort of failure well you set a goal right so immediately an active creation right you've created a goal okay then you have for some reason determined that the point you're at now, oh, another active creation, you're determining a point, does not match your goal. Another active creation, you're determining a relationship between the point you're at and the goal, which is a failure, which is another active creation because you've created the designation of failure for that particular state. Rather than Lacan, who would be like, oh, well, maybe Freud is a better example. There's this environment and it doesn't match what you want. And so you get sad. Right? Like, there's no creation. Like, it's just negative. It's like an inversion of that.
6: Well, there I get confused again. Um, because they're saying that the creation happens from the failure. They're, they're saying that... I mean, when Brooks talks about how even this part about materialist psychiatry sort of hits the nail on the head, because I think that's the real difference because the the lack is material insofar as the signifier is material. the lack that the signifier creates is almost immaterial. It's almost like a haunting of sorts. Um, but through that is what creates things. Uh, the, the psychoanalytic notion is that there needs to be, a negative negative one before there can even be a two that the that the one is already split before it's even one so their their idea is that negativity is necessary for creation and production and
1: movement i think so, something yeah. I, 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 important to note here is that like when when we're talking about like materialist psychiatry i think you're coming to a bit of maybe a misconception in that they're trying to distinct themselves from a traditional understanding of materialist anything because they're talking about like a Spinozan a- like plane of eminence right where there's no like there's just a plane and then things like emerge from the plane a- a- as an eminent object right so the- they're saying like all these connections like all these synthesis like the three syntheses, are happening in a way on the plane of eminence right so there's no like a uh, there's no like the like the the idea of something even being immaterial like just doesn't make any sense that way right like the, that's what they mean by materialist. there is a one substance which is what everything is made of, and then you, you just draw like arbitrary you territorialize right you make like arbitrary borders to determine objects
5: so then i yeah I think that's exactly the uh yeah that's exactly i think the uh in really in a way the key uh do we start with because it seems to me. Deleuze and Guattari start with a kind of, I mean, this plane of imminence, it's basically like an all-encompassing positivity, right, uh, to the point where, I mean, they, they wouldn't even, I don't think, want to call it that, because, uh, but the thing they're, they're, they, they, that, that is not really there in their ontology is the negative, right, this minus one, and then you go on the other side, the psychoanalytic side, and the ontology really is Uh, contains this negativity in it. Like it's sort of primal, it's primary. The negative is in a sense prior even to the positive in in certain cases. It sounds that way. And uh, um, and my question is, like, how do you decide? I mean, okay, so, you know, we read Deleuze on Tuesdays, we read Lacan on Thursdays. How do we decide? uh, Somebody mentioned in the chat, I think it was Ken, that there is something of a, of, a, of an act of faith going on here, um, I don't know if that's a way to think about it. I'm just I'm just kind of you know, um, it's sort of like the uh, I guess bit of a chicken and an egg problem. Like, okay, so do I say that the plane of imminence is first, or do I say that the negative is first, the minus one? Like, how do I make up my mind about that?
1: And okay. um, this is kind of going into a thousand plateaus, so I don't want to go too far. But you're favoring like a linear view of causality, right? You're the, you have like an abhorrent thinking rather than a you're you're creating like an arbitrary center. What what if there's just no center? Like there doesn't have to be a first or a before.
3: To to expand on this, it's reciprocal determination. There's no chicken or the egg in the sense of a primary first cause, right? So if you're looking, and this is why their universal history is really important too. If you're looking to go back to something, if you're looking to find where it all began, it's not going to happen. It's straight up not going to happen because even then you're going to find something prior to that, what they're getting at is reciprocal determinism where the machinic and the the structure, if we use wateries earlier terms, or the desiring machines, desiring production, all of this stuff is mutually contingent in relation to each other, desire and productivity. Uh, you can't have one without the other. You can't, in the same way, you can't have a chicken without an egg,
0: right? Debate settled. <laughs> and uh, just as a last thing, because we're about to continue on, um, the other part of it is uh, their entire thing is essentially we don't know, we don't need lack. Their sort of materialist unconscious, this machinic unconscious, doesn't have a need for the production of lack, doesn't have a need for lack. Uh, lack becomes a thing at some point. But with Lacan, the way that it works and with psychoanalysis in general is that lack is necessary for desire to exist and their question is simply why. It's a fair question and they kind of go into the parts of that. It's a a really good, uh, definitely a longer conversation we need to have uh, soon. But I'm going to continue on to the next paragraph so we can eventually get through this. I believe I'm on desire does not express, right? Uh,
3: The real is not impossible. Okay,
0: yeah. The real is not impossible. On the contrary, within the real, everything is possible. Everything becomes possible. Desire does not express a molar lack within the subject. Rather, the molar organization deprives desire of its objective being. Revolutionaries, artists, and seers are content to be objective, merely objective. They know that desire clasps life in its powerfully productive embrace, and reproduces it in a way that is all the more intense because it has few needs. Never mind those who believe that this is very easy to say or that it is the sort of idea to be found in books. Quote From the little reading I had done, I had observed that the men who were most in life, who were molding life, who were life itself, ate little, slept little, owned little, or nothing. They had no illusions about duty or the perpetuation of their kith and kin or the preservation of the state. The phantasmal world is the world which has never been fully conquered over. It is the world of the past, never of the future. To move forward, clinging to the past is like dragging a ball and chain." The true visionary is a Spinoza in the garb of a Neapolitan revolutionary. We know very well where lack and its subjective correlative come from. Lack, Manquet, is created, planned, and organized in and through social production. It is counterproduced as a result of the pressure of anti-production. The latter falls back on sir, sir, the forces of production and appropriates them. It is never primary. Production is never organized on the basis of a pre-existing need or lack. It is lack that infiltrates itself, creates empty spaces or vacuoles, and propagates itself in accordance with the organization of an already existing organization of production. If the deliberate creation of lack as a function of market economy is the art of a dominant class. The deliberate creation of lack as a function of market economy is the art of a dominant class. This involves deliberately organizing wants and needs amid an abundance of production, making all of desire teeter and fall victim to the great fear of not having one's needs satisfied, and making the object dependent upon a real production that is supposedly exterior to desire, the demands of rationality, while at the same time the production of desire is categorized as fantasy and nothing but fantasy really a lovely critique of marxism isn't it <laughs> it's it's a critique of a few things the uh, the again to the thing they're referencing here is that uh, lack is not something that's produced uh i again i think this is a sort of take directly on lacan the uh they even use the reference monk here monk okay, however he pronounces it um and, monk. monk thank you thank you i'm terrible i anglicized the shit out of everything um the uh the reference here is, is, is very direct. Uh, lack is not something in, in Lacanian that we are born with. It's not something that's sort of a natural human trait as part of some sort of uh, transcendental soul or anything. It's produced as the infant, uh, the first time he deals with the breast of the mother, uh, and he feels that, he's enjoying that, and then the breast is removed. And in, in that moment, that that breast is no longer the perfect breast because it's removed. That's a bad breast. I want that. It's going away. And so, in that moment, uh, the infant creates a uh, symbolized version of that in his head a, the perfect breast uh, and then that creates the first lack in the child and that's really where it starts and that process the the gap left by these objects is is where lack is generated and for them they're saying no no it's that's the unconscious that's this it's we need to talk instead about lack being created in social interactions the way that People interact with each other or the way that groups interact or society at large when we have sort of large-scale uh, social interactions. Instead, the, the, the repression that comes with that, the demands of the society, what is considered rational, uh, this is what actually creates that lack that gets inserted into us, that gets inserted into this process as, uh, as uh, vacuoles, as spaces of emptiness, as lack.
4: Maybe I'm coming a bit late with this, but uh, because he has mentioned it, uh, they have mentioned it before. But just uh, when they when they mentioned somebody, someone being a Spinozist or or um, being someone uh, uh, that is like Spinoza, what, what what do they mean exactly with that? How
3: much time you got?
4: Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> but like in, in in this specific sentence, do, would you have a uh, a synonym for it?
3: The short version I've always been given is the interest in imminence, the focus on understanding not what a body is, but what a body can do, and thereby its capacities. So, like Spinoza's ethics, Spinoza's, um, in some sense, even his ontology, is working through capacities as opposed to trying to get at uh, sort of like innate essences. So, right, like we're not going to ask, and this is exactly how they critique psychoanalysis. We're not going to ask what desire is, right? We're going to ask how it functions, what it does, and the capacities um, therein.
4: And so in this point, they agree with Spinoza.
3: Yeah, that's some of the Spinozian influence. It's definitely part of the Spinozian influence.
4: So one thing I'm thinking about here um,
5: with this uh, discussion of lack. Uh, So I think another way to say lack uh, in different philosophers, I think Lacan is one of them, also in Heidegger, kind of the ultimate lack is basically the fact of death, right? Um, so, you know, ultimate mortality and being finite and, you know, coming to an end eventually. And um, I wonder if one sort of sort of consequence of the losing guitar is that ultimately we kind of have to say, there really is no such thing as death in the full sense. Sure, like things disintegrate and kind of return to nature. Um, But death in the sense of like the ultimate end, you know, the ultimate kind of uh, conclusion or the ultimate sort of, um, you know, cut, uh, that I think to them doesn't really make sense. And it's kind of, I mean, the sense that I get is there is a kind of underlying spiritualism where you know what happens when i die well whatever is be is going to kind of blend into the rest of nature and it's you know the stoics talk that way about death and it's um uh you know very different from existentialism and um and it seems like you know that seems to be a prerequisite for you know being in the delusian sort of frame that this is how this is how they think of death
1: uh, a couple things. Firstly, I would say Heidegger was criticizing that ultimate view of death, not embracing it. That was like his whole idea of like death being with you uh, throughout the whole process of your life. I would say, if anything, Deleuze and Guattari are agreeing with Heidegger on that particular notion. Um, and also, you are again favoring a traditional naturalistic idea of like there's the physical world and there's the spiritual world, right? to Deleuze and Guattari there is no difference and so when we talk about like for instance the 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 uh, bachelors the uh, the uh, bride like uh, stripped bare by her bachelors even i don't know if you were here last time when that was shown becoming like during the process right so if i like we could say that the library of alexandria is is gone now because it was burnt down but really it being burnt down is a part of um, is a part of the library of Alexandria right it's not over because it being burnt down is now a part of it that's associated with it so acting like there's this like return to nature like it doesn't it's not really what they're saying I don't think it's just like we're just arbitrarily deciding there's an end based on some other like arbitrary naturalistic structure that we've decided on beforehand that they're trying to do away with
0: I'm going to go ahead and uh, continue now Uh, with the, uh, I think, continuing critique. There is no such thing as the social production of reality on the one hand and the desiring production that is mere fantasy on the other. The only connections that could be established between these two productions would be secondary ones of introjection and projection, as though all social practices had their precise counterpart in introjected or internal mental practices. Sorry. Uh, One sec. My dog's going nuts. Give me two seconds. Sorry, she gets a little crazy sometimes. Usually she just animal happening alive. Yeah, and she usually uh, just sleeps through all of this. But today she did. To say again, um, the only connections that could be established between these two productions would be secondary ones of introjection and projection, as though all social practices had their precise counterpart in introjected or internal mental practices, or as though mental practices were projected upon social systems without either of the two sets of practices ever having any real or concrete effect upon the other. As long as we are content to establish a perfect parallel between money, gold, capital, and the capitalist triangle on the one hand, and the libido, anus, phallus, and the family triangle on the other, we are engaging in an enjoyable pastime, but the mechanisms of money remain totally unaffected by the anal projections of those who manipulate money. The Marx-Freud parallelism between the two remains utterly sterile, and insignificant, as long as it is expressed in terms that make them introjections and projections of each other without ceasing to be utterly alien to each other, as in the famous equation, money equals shit. The truth of the matter is that social production is purely and simply desiring production itself under determinate conditions. We maintain that the social field is immediately invested by desire. That it is the historically determined product of desire, and that libido has no need of any mediation or sublimation, any psychic operation, any transformation, in order to invade and invest the productive forces and the relations of production. There is only desire and the social, and nothing else. Core version of this critique. I'll take a crack. Uh, Basically, uh, we spend our time talking about the play of unconscious, the, the imaginary fantasy dreamland unconscious inside of our heads. And how in order for that unconscious to deal with the real world, we need to be Oedipalized fully. Now the real world needs to be Oedipalized because we have uh, you know, money and capital and gold and the capitalist triangle on the one hand. We have Oedipal on the other. It's great. Hey, we can match that. But we kind of miss out on a lot of things, like such as the fact that capital is ultimately actually controlled by people at the top. Uh, and that at the same time, uh, our desiring machines and our desire maybe doesn't necessarily need to end and have a stop where it gets transformed or sublimated into something else. Instead, actually, is it a thing, as they propose, that our desiring machines and those connections really are all of it, and that, uh, as they say, there is only desire in the social, nothing else. It's a matter of uh, regime, I think they say later on. Even the most repressive and the most deadly forms of social reproduction are produced by desire within the organization that is the consequence of such production, under various conditions that we must analyze. That is why the fundamental problem of political philosophy is still precisely the one that Spinoza saw so clearly, and that Wilhelm Reich rediscovered. Quote, Why do men fight for their servitude, as stubbornly as though it were their salvation? How can people possibly reach the point of shouting, more taxes, less bread? As Reich remarks, the astonishing thing is not that some people steal and others occasionally go out on strike, but rather that all those who are starving do not steal as a regular practice and all those who are exploited are not continually out on strike. After centuries of exploitation, why do people still tolerate being humiliated and enslaved? To such a point, indeed, that they actually want humiliation and slavery, not only for others, but for themselves. Reich is at his profoundest as a thinker when he refuses to accept ignorance or illusion on the part of the masses as an explanation of fascism, and demands an explanation that will take their desires into account. An explanation formulated in terms of desire. No, the masses were not innocent dupes. At a certain point, under a certain set of conditions, they wanted fascism. And it is this perversion of the desire of the masses that needs to be accounted for.
3: And that's from his appropriately named book, The Mass Psychology of Fascism.
0: I'm gonna go ahead and uh, continue to the next paragraph. Yet Reich himself never manages to provide a satisfactory explanation of this phenomenon because at a certain point, he reintroduces precisely the line of argument that he was in the process of demolishing. By creating a distinction between rationality as it is or ought to be in the process of social production and the irrational element in desire, and by regarding only this latter as a suitable subject for psychoanalytic investigation, Hence, the sole task he assigns psychoanalysis is the explanation of the negative, the subjective, the inhibited within the social field. He therefore necessarily returns to a dualism between the real object rationally produced on the one hand and irrational fantasizing production on the other. He gives up trying to discover the common denominator or the coextension of the social field of desire in order to establish the basis for a genuinely materialistic psychiatry. There is a category that Reich was sorely in need of, that of desiring production, which would apply to the real in both its so-called rational and irrational forms.
3: I don't know, man. I just twisted my ankle. Now I give it a shot. Okay, so if you're following us here, right, one of the main arguments and points of investigation for this book is to understand um, why people want to be fascist. right? What's happening there? And they're criticizing here this idea that the people have been tricked, right? So they're going to say it's not an ideological problem, right? Ideology is at best always secondary. It's something we put atop the desires to explain them, to rationalize them. And this is kind of what I see them criticizing Reich for. Reich takes on this point that it's not a problem of rationalism. Well, at least he, he begins by saying it's not a point of rationalism or irrationalism. It's not a point of innocence and guilt. It's a question of desires right what is what are the desires that are producing people um, in this manner right where they would actually prefer uh, higher taxes over more bread so one of the ways they're getting at this is to use desiring production desiring machines to understand the unconscious as producing people in this manner and producing fascism in that manner for um i was gonna say for that matter but that's redundant me speak english well (laughs) for
0: that uh point again the the thing they keep going back to is this way that desire or lack at some point uh we assign to these larger scale symbols or complexes or ways of understanding that we then uh, assign other values to as they talk about with uh the the fascists and this is something we're dealing with right now a little bit in america if you haven't noticed um, people who absolutely demand their own uh, their own enslavement, uh, hilariously uh, in some ways that are incredibly ironic, and a lot of the refrain when talking about them is that they've been duped, that they don't understand what they're doing, that if they only could see the light, they wouldn't be cheering for fascists anymore, and that their argument would very quickly be no, no, we we need to instead think about desire where it starts and how it's produced over time through the social and through social machines, and how it gets warped and changed by repression. This is not a matter of, oh, they got duped into believing one symbol over another, which tends to be, again, the refrain we hear very often. And Reich was one of the ones who sort of started down this path. Uh, didn't Just didn't go far enough, I think they would say.
3: Yes, and we should clarify that, just like for Foucault, for Deleuze and Guadier, I think it is the case that freedom is a condition of uh, this ontology of this ethics. So, when we're talking about people wanting fascism and that, we're not saying they have absolutely nothing to do with the matter. But we're talking about how they're produced in this manner, how subjectivities happen, how there is a social production um, and with desire for that matter that uh, produces people in this manner that leads them to want uh, something like fascism. And we should also clarify, too, that when we're talking about fascism, we're not talking about something that can simply be located. In um, the desire for a strong man, that's not a very good engagement with autocracy or fascism. Right? we're talking about how groups come together to um, imbibe fascism, right? As as wanting it, not simply as wanting the strong man, but as as wanting this group subjugation.
0: And with that, I'm going to continue to the the fact there is massive social repression. That has an enormous effect on desiring production in no way vitiates our principle. Desire produces reality, or, stated another way, desiring production is one and the same thing as social production. It is not possible to attribute a special form of existence to desire, a mental or psychic reality that is presumably different from the material reality of social production. Desiring machines are not fantasy machines or dream machines, which supposedly can be distinguished from technical and social machines. Rather, fantasies are secondary expressions, deriving from the identical nature of the two sorts of machines in any given set of circumstances. Thus fantasy is never individual. It is group fantasy. An institutional analysis has successfully, as institutional analysis has successfully demonstrated, if there is such a thing as two sorts of group fantasy, it is because two different readings of this identity are possible, depending on pawn whether the desiring machines are regarded from the point of view of the great gregarious masses that they form, or whether social machines are considered from the point of view of the elementary forces of desire that serve as the basis for them. Hence, in group fantasy, the libido may invest all of an existing social field, including the latter's most repressive forms, or on the contrary, it may launch a counter-investment whereby revolutionary desire is plugged into the existing social field as a source of energy, The great socialist utopias of the 19th century function, for example, not as ideal models, but as group fantasies, that is, as agents of the real productivity of desire, making it possible to disinvest from the current social field, to deinstitutionalize it, to further the revolutionary institution of desire itself. But there is never any difference in nature between the desiring machines and the technical social machines. There is a certain distinction between them, but it is merely a distinction of regime depending on their relationships of size. Except for this difference in régime, they are the same machines, as group fantasies clearly prove. If have a translator's note for the word régime. It's worth going over. The word régime has a number of meanings in French, including regiment or form of government, a set of laws, rules, or regulations, rate of flow as of a current, rate or speed of operation as of a motor or engine, since the authors use this word in several senses, the French word regime has been retained throughout the English text. Uh, again, the, their, their point here is it's... Uh, it, the term regime for me, uh, as I've read through this, uh, I read it as them talking about basically the, the desiring machines that may exist, uh, we'll say, within the unconscious, and the social machines, which are desiring machines, but at a meta scale. Is how i've understood this
3: um okay so one thing that helped me um so when they're talking like partial objects organs desiring machines they're considering perspectives of something right so with social machines and desire machines like met is always a charged word in philosophy but i I know what you're going for and and that's about right that the desire machines and the social machines are perspectives upon this um upon each other. So like when we get in the molar molecule, we'll see how it's a simultaneity
0: with a difference
3: of perspective.
0: Yeah, with the the unconscious and desiring machines being from the perspective of the subject that it creates and also the uh, social machines, are social machines uh, in that regime from the perspective of the, effectively, the social that it creates, the society, the group, the, the delirium, I think is as they go on to call it. Let's say order of regime, but ultimately all of it is simply desiring machines all the way down.
5: I've got a question about that. Um, So this uh, point that they're making about extending uh, this desiring machine over to the social. um, I guess I'm looking maybe for an example or something a little bit more concrete. So I can see, you know, how a desiring machine describes something like a baby sucking at a breast or something like, you know, an infant, the the bodily functions, right? Or even something like digestion or something like, you know, the peristalsis, like the movement of food through the intestines or, you know, all of these processes. Uh, That seems right on to me. Um, But I guess I, I have some trouble seeing... How do we extend that to something like, let's say, a complex political process? I mean, let's say, um, you know, let's say a political negotiation, or some kind of summit meeting, or something that's actually exists in the social world. Uh, And I I mean, I'm sure they give examples somewhere, it's probably maybe it's, it's, it's coming further up. But uh.
7: I guess one way to think about it, Al Dreams is that maybe it's sort of like, is the question backwards? Like, how did we arrive at a point in which we conceive of desire within something like the family unit as something, A, that's not political or not social, and B, as somehow if that were the case, and political and social are separate categories, that is, that they're, you know, how, did, that they are disconnected in the first place. So I think throughout the text, they're kind of at pains to say, like, there's no way, moment at which this supposed, like, abstract, the theater of the family and the father and the mother and the triangle aren't always simultaneously produced by the, all the surrounding conditions that make them what they are. And they go into examples of like, uh, you know, trying to, seeing psychoanalysts who've tried desperately tried to find Oedipus, you know, this is a time when the French colonial empire is still present. So like going to Algeria and saying, okay, where is Oedipus here? And it's sort of like, they make this joke that as soon as you go to the colonies, it almost becomes like painfully obvious how politicized all of this is. And that ironically, the like the white man needs to understand that to like return to so-called himself to understand that all of it has always been political. But um yeah, I guess I'm thinking of it in terms of I pasted this quote from later in the book where they it's one we always come back to on this server of like where they say that there's always a cousin out of work, a victim of the crash, an anarchist grandfather, a grandmother in the hospital. You know, this, I think they're really trying to move beyond this idea that this family unit that is kind of the basic point of departure for most psychoanalysis is somehow the natural point of departure. And therefore we have to justify why desire uh, moves beyond just that sphere when they're, when what they're trying to say is, Like from, you know, political movements, cultural movements, art, (laughs) whole structure, like capitalism itself, all of these things, like libidinal forces are, we were speaking in the chat before, like they have this thing about if what Marx did is refine the idea of the abstract subjective essence of labor, what psychoanalysis did is define and discover, in a sense, the abstract subjective essence of desire. But then instead of allowing that to kind of, uh, you know, to revel in that discovery, it closed it down again by linking it up to all these you know this high german culture of like the oedipal theater um so i think it's just once again that operation of kind of reversing the question and say well what what made us think that desire is this abstract thing that isn't connected to how society is structured in the first place i guess
5: yeah i think one answer to that may be not that it's not connected but that uh, i guess this may be a, i don't know if this is a standard answer of any kind but Uh, You know, when you look out on the social world, and actually, I think you already have this in the family to some extent, uh, you know, people often organize themselves based on something like meaning, right? Something like, um, I don't know what to call it, like, I mean, some people call it ideas, right? Some people call it uh, causes, maybe, Uh, you know, these things that kind of move the political world. And uh whereas when you're talking about a baby sucking at the breast you know kind of like bare sort of pure desire right uh i mean in, in, a, in a way it's a very beautiful thing but it also seems to lack this kind of um uh you know this this category that's often used i think in the social world which will be something like meaning or something like i mean i guess it would be identity right and uh, that's why, I mean, I find what they're doing here pretty interesting, because I think they're saying, you know, intentionality doesn't really have a place, doesn't have an explanatory role. We need to take, take things down to this kind of field of intensity and field of, you know, flows and cuts and, and, uh, um, and their kind of relations. And um, yeah, so, but I'm wondering, okay, so that works for a baby at the breast. But does it work for, um, you know, larger processes and, you know, processes that are very intricate and very complex?
7: I think maybe maybe someone else can say, but I think they, they would say it's actually, it works even better in a way when you're talking about those processes. Because when you when you look at capitalism on a mass scale and you look at the way it functions, I think for them, it's sort of like, these are all, they're different kinds of bodies without organs. and if we deprivilege the idea of looking at everything from the point of view of the subject, uh, we we very much like our, those libidinal flows within ourselves, so-called, or within larger institutions, or whatever they are, any kind of structure, like they're always happening and they're always constituting things. So from, from the point of view of like capital as a body without organs, y- you are part of those machinic flows already. You know, that's something that Deleuze gets into another in place. So... Uh, yeah, I don't know if I have a perfect answer to that, but I think it comes in this book later on.
0: And in the uh, uh, chat, a uh, couple of the questions, the big question is, uh, the core of the chapter is saying something like, what we desire is produced by our society and culture. They're They're about to get into a little bit of a shift on that, so I will say straight away that uh that's actually the the opposite of what they're saying that they are uh desire is something that is produced at the level of partial objects connecting to partial objects and it's not we or i that it's it's much more microscopic and molecular than that what happens over time is a ton of these connections and disconnections happen and those get recorded and at some point uh we I, Brooks, emerge out of my desiring machines that I perceive as mine that I control. Uh, This is the case for me and everyone else. Now, on top of that, I'm also interacting with other people in their desiring machines and society at large. All of this together produces a kind of society-wide subject that tells us kind of how we behave or how a society works or whatever that larger delirium is. So it's not so much that uh, society or even i produce desire desiring machines produce desire and the byproducts of that during that process are myself uh, and society at large and so uh, but they're going to start getting into in a moment uh, what society and how repression works inside of this because that's um it, this is where they're starting to get and i want to continue to dive forward uh again um it's a great discussion but i'm going to keep plowing ahead When in the discourse of our discussion above, we laid down the broad outlines of parallelism between social production and desiring production in order to show that in both cases there is a strong tendency on the part of the forces of anti-production to operate retroactively on productive forms and appropriate them, this parallelism was in no way meant as an exhaustive description of the relationship between the two systems of production they merely enable us, us to point to certain phenomena having to do with the difference in regime between them. In the first place, technical machines obviously work only if they are not out of order. They ordinarily stop working, not because they break down, but because they wear out. Marx makes use of this simple principle to show that the regime of technical machines is characterized by a strict distinction between the means of production and the product. Thanks to this distinction, the machine transmits value to the product but only the value that the machine itself loses as it wears out. Desiring machines, on the contrary, continually break down as they run, and in fact, only run when they are not functioning properly. Product is always an offshoot of production, implanting itself upon it like a graft. And at the same time, the parts of the machine are the fuel that makes it run. uh, Any comments before I move on? Because I know you guys are having a great uh, conversation in the chat and I'm trying to figure out if we can tie back to it. Art often takes advantage of this property of desiring machines by creating veritable group fantasies, in which desiring production is used to short-circuit social production, and to interfere with the reproductive function of technical machines by introducing an element of dysfunction—Armin's charred violins, for instance, or Caesar's compressed car bodies. More generally, Dali's method of critical paranoia assures the explosion of the desiring machine within an object of social production. But even earlier, Ravel preferred to throw his inventions entirely out of gear rather than let them simply run down, and chose to end his compositions with abrupt breaks, hesitations, tremolos, discordant notes, and unresolved chords, rather than allowing them to slowly wind down or to close or gradually die away into silence. The artist is the master of objects. He puts before us shattered, burnt, broken-down objects, converting them to the regime of desiring machines. Breaking down is part of the very functioning of desiring machines. The artist presents paranoiac machines, miraculating machines, and celibate machines as so many technical machines, so as to cause desiring machines to undermine technical machines. Even more important, the work of art is itself a desiring machine. The artist stores up his treasures, so as to create an immediate explosion, and that is why, to his way of thinking, destructions can never take place as rapidly as they ought to. An incredibly interesting aesthetic theory that is proposed here that uh Aguadri gets a little bit into as well. In uh, I want to say his book, God, uh, he wrote a book on Japan called uh, God, I'm gonna get it wrong, I'll wait. It's a wonderful uh, piece uh, on the art, the machinic
2: book. unconscious.
0: There you go, thank you, Ben. Machinic unconscious, sorry, machinic eros, machinic oh, eros, yes, yes, machinic eros. it's phenomenal as a reading of this. Um, The discussion they're having here is about the interaction between how desire machines work and constantly break down, how they interact with social machines, and how the entire process enables the the social machines and desiring desiring machines to interact in unique ways. This is not a simple setup. They get a great deal more in-depth in this in uh, Chapter 2. Anyone have comments or thoughts on these, these two paragraphs, actually?
4: I'm rereading it because I think I have a
0: take, but let me, give me a second. So uh, we're on page 32. Uh, down, sorry. Saw that. So uh, the one thing we know about desiring machines is that uh, they are always trying to connect, always looking for connections. And uh, them breaking down is them working. They connect and disconnect. They're breaking and running, breaking and running, breaking and running breaking, connecting, breaking, connecting, over and over and over. That's how they work. That's how they produce. That's how things come out of them, things as we know them, things. Uh, the the way that the artist interacts with this is by creating a piece, because it is a social machine, it exists a, inside of the realm of technical objects or technical machines, as Simon Dunn-influenced uh, category. Uh, the way that my eyes connect with it as a very very simple way form a design machine I can't get enough of good art that does interesting things that makes my desiring machines almost confused unable to handle it unable to be sensu- unable un- to understand what's happening and not be calm it's a I would almost say this is an indictment of like a Thomas Kincaid style art piece versus a dolly or versus uh, some of the more extraordinary artists uh, uh, a i we- Weiwei, for example one that comes to mind that i've had this experience with uh these exist and they cause desire machines to just go nuts connect a million times and then re-break and find new things to connect to over and over and over and essentially this process is through this technical machine of the art causing my desire machines to go wild and actually shatter other technical machines that it's connected to that i'm i'm connected to in terms of you know, me talking about the subject in an awkward way, but my desiring machines. I'm just going to say, uh, it's it's a really uh, fantastic way to sort of talk through how these things these things outside of us have an impact on us and how they can inspire and change and miraculate and celebrate and do some crazy stuff. I really enjoy these paragraphs.
4: I think I think what's interesting about this is that. Um... Uh, for sure, unconsciously, or at least uh, uh, I don't think uh, a lot of artists are, are have read Deleuze necessarily. I mean, of course, there are artists who have, but um, there's subconsciously, I think, a lot of contemporary artists that also play with this idea of art to maybe negate it as well, which is maybe ironic in a way. And I'm thinking of 24-Hour Psycho, um, uh, and now I forgot the name of the artist. Uh, um, Douglas Gordon, Douglas Gordon, um, twenty four hours Psycho, where he uh, stretched out the movie Psycho by Hitchcock uh, until twenty four hours, so that's the twenty four hours, and we also have to think of Kurosami as a filmmaker who made films that specifically last long, as in- intentionally last long. Um. Also, because I think both of the artists, in their very own way also try to actually um, uh, distant you from the object, the art object, because it's impossible, or, or um, they try to create a distance between you and the art object so as t- to not have you focus on it in a way. Um, and that you become aware of things in your surroundings, which is for, for Douglas Gordon, I think very important because he likes to think about, he likes to reflect on gallery and museum space a lot.
0: That's a fantastic example of it. It's, it's, it's 100% what they're talking about here as well. And so it's
4: funny because on on, on, first, um, on first glance, 24-Hour Psycho is about the movie Psycho by Hitchcock, but that's only a part of it because I think for Douglas Gordon, 24-Hour Psycho is about gallery space.
0: Uh, to continue on. From this, a second difference in regime results. Desiring machines produce anti production all by themselves, whereas the anti production characteristic of technical machines takes place only within the extrinsic conditions of the reproduction of the process, even though these conditions do not come into being at some later stage. That is why technical machines are not an economic category and always refer back to a socius or a social machine that is quite distinct from these machines and that conditions this reproduction. A technical machine is therefore not a cause, but merely an index of a general form of social production. Thus, there are manual machines in primitive societies, hydraulic machines in Asiatic forms of society, industrial machines in capitalism. Hence, when we posited the socius as the analog of a full body without organs, there was nonetheless one important difference. For desiring machines are the fundamental category of the economy of desire, they produce a body without organs all by themselves and make no distinction between agents and their own parts, or between the relations of production and their own relations, or between the social order and technology. Desiring machines are both technical and social. It is in this sense that desiring production is the locus of primal psychic repression, whereas social production is where social repression takes place, and it is between the former and the latter that there occurs something that resembles secondary psychic repression in the strictest sense. The situation of the body without organs, or its equivalent, the crucial factor here, depending on whether it is the result of an internal process or of an extrinsic condition, thus affects the role of the death instinct in particular. All right, so uh, I'll take a crack at this. This feels like they're talking about basically as uh, the difference in regime uh, takes place, we have to understand that there is a, well, we have a a BWO, my, my BWO that at some point creates through miraculating energy uh, my subjectivity that creates it and sees it and calls it my own um, after that we have to understand that as this hyper complex system and the secondary regime takes place the same process is in play as well a type of body without organs or its equivalent is created as well in the larger scale of those and i know i know every time i say i'll take a crack at this I'm trying to keep the discussion going, people. <laughs> just trying to trying to keep it going. Um, I'm trying, trying not to make this a despot situation where I'm telling you what Deleuze is trying to say. All of this is just my interpretation of my understanding, although I, I like to think I'm fairly close uh, at this point. but it's.
7: It is interesting, this thing about technical machines, because I feel like this is sort of indirectly responding to certain kinds of Marxism. That would have it that kind of whatever you know the introduction of x kind of process you know has led to these things or as they would say later in the book like this machine or like um for example like the proletariat by their common lot of working in on these kinds of machine these effects are produced or that industrial capitalism kind of occurred you know for a lot of the european marxists they, they were the classical idea was that it had started in like the late 1800s and This kind of stuff it's very linked to the idea of all these technical machines create these possibilities for subjectivity and they're kind of saying here well technical machines ironically the things that produce the economy as we would understand it they're not economic they're just indexes of the of the socials of like where it is at a particular time so they say merely an index of a general form of social production you know manual machines hydraulic machines industrial machines so for them, when they're talking about the economy in terms of like what organizes society itself, desiring production is still more basic than, uh, you know, that, that kind of industrial, you know, technical machines that we might point to. And I think there's been a lot of work by, you know, Marxists since the 70s and since Marx himself to kind of like pick away at that thesis and look, you know, try and look further than just direct causation from technical machines equals capitalism. You know, you can look at the roots of it even further back. You know, there's different schools of thought with that. But uh, I think that might be one way of taking, taking a
0: crack at that paragraph. Uh, I'm going to continue to the next paragraph unless anyone has a question on this. But at the same time, they are the same machines, despite the fact that they are governed by two different regimes and despite the fact that it is admittedly a strange adventure for desire to desire repression. There is only one kind of production, the production of the real, and doubtless we can express this identity in two different ways, even though these two ways together constitute the auto-production of the unconscious as a cycle. We can say that social production, under determinate conditions, derives primarily from desiring production, which is to say that Homo A comes first. But we must also say more accurately That desiring production is first and foremost social in nature and tends to free itself only at the end, which is to say that Homo historia comes first. The body without organs is not an original primordial entity that later projects itself into different sorts of socias, as though it were a raving paranoiac, the chieftain of the primitive horde who was initially responsible for social organization. The social machine or socius may be the body of the earth, the body of the despot, the body of money. It is never a projection, however, of the body without organs. On the contrary, the body without organs is the ultimate residuum of a deterritorialized socius. The prime function incumbent upon the socius has always been to codify the flows of desire, to inscribe them, to record them, to see to it that no flow exists that is not properly dammed up, channeled, regulated. When the primitive territorial machine prov- proved inadequate to the task, the despotic machine set up a kind of overcoding system. But the capitalist machine, in so far as it was built on the ruins of a despotic state, more or less far removed in time, finds itself in a totally new situation. It is faced with the task of decoding and deterritorializing the flows. Capitalism does not confront this situation from the outside since it experiences it as the very fabric of its existence, as both its primary determinant and its fundamental raw material. Its form and its function and deliberately perpetuates it in all its violence, with all the powers at its command. Its sovereign production and repression can be achieved in no other way. Capitalism is, in fact, born of the encounter of two sorts of flows, the decoded flows of production in the form of money capital, and the decoded flows of labor in the form of the free worker. Hence, unlike previous social machines, the capitalist machine is incapable of providing a code that will apply to the whole of the social field. By substituting money for the very notion of a code, it has created an axiomatic of abstract quantities that keeps moving further and further in the direction of the deterritorialization of the socius. Capitalism tends toward a threshold of decoding that will destroy the socius in order to make it a body without organs and unleash the flows of desire on this body as a deterritorialized field. It is correct to say, in this sense, schizophrenia is the product of the capitalist machine, as manic depression and paranoia are the product of the despotic machine, and hysteria the product of the territorial machine.
8: <sighs>
0: so much. Uh, I will say that I'm not going to go too deep in the explanation of despot, the earth and money. Uh, We are going to spend so much time on those uh, later in in the book. Uh, The the overarching thing that they're discussing here is that uh, as these regimes are changing, as they're set up, it's not so much a body without organs, but a socius, a body without organs is essentially an organization that you as a subject are able to refer to, to find reference and relations of signs inside of your life and decide, uh, kind of enact or believe that you decide uh, kind of what you're going to interact with and how you view the world. Socius operates very differently because uh, the socius job essentially is social organization. Uh, Instead of organizing uh, the desiring machines or, you know, their connections or you as a subject, uh, which tends to be how the body without organs sort of operates, the socius instead has to organize overall codes and flows within society. And this change over time and how the socius operates is what they see as the sort of underlying uh, way societies functioned as they talk about essentially through history. Um, so it's a, a kind of, again, taking the idea of uh, the desiring machines yielding the body without organs, and they're saying the social machines they end up actually producing something close, but here, here's how this one works, and here's the setup. And they're again, they're going to be getting very, very, very deep into this later. But the line that matters here is, uh, unlike previous social machines, the capitalist machine is incapable of providing a code that will apply to the whole of the social field. By substituting money for the very notion of a code, it has created an axiomatic of abstract quantities it keeps moving further and further in the direction of the deterritorialization of the socius. Uh, this is the, not something I'm going to explain now. This is the sentence, their critique of capital, that they, again, will be getting super, super, super deep into. Uh, any questions on this paragraph? Any thoughts? Um, the question in the chat, uh, Shinichi, asks uh, one of these premises has to be false. Everything is a machine. If something is a machine, it has no intentionality. Uh, so the question is if everything is a machine, do I have intentionality? Do I have agency? Um, the uh okay um so for first of all
3: intentionality for whom right whom are we who whose intentionality are we talking about here are we talking about bruts intentionality in a way that Brutz i'm sorry i'm picking on you, bruts uh in a way that brooks could be taken as though he doesn't exist in relation to things as though he right it depends how you're you're building up this idea of intentionality the answer i would give you is that one intentionality for whom desire machines are connecting right they do have functionalities and they're within processes that's like the normal way we think about intent the uh, second thing i'll say is intent as i'm thinking about it would be a capacity rather than like a, and it's not intent in terms of a telos either uh intent would be something of a capacity here
0: i i would so i would just respond and say that um... The the assumption of intentionality assumes cause and effect, and cause and effect assumes a center. That's the the nature of the beast. I there is no. I, mean, I, cen- think,
8: uh, I think there's the question around um, intentionality as it relates to Shinichi's question around entailments, specifically around um, the fact that intentionality is. Has a machine equality in terms of it uh, moving a proposition in a particular way. So there is a um, unconscious, possibly an unconscious aspect to intentionality around certain propositions. Uh, uh, and it could be a, um, it's hard to know exactly whether it is a machine or a pipe, but basically uh, intentionality is a possible representation. Could be for intentionality. Is that that something travels along? Yes. If
0: if all we were is the pipes. uh, So if all we were is desiring machines, literally just the connections, we would never stop connecting. That would be a, that would just be the way it is. It's this is good. I'm not stopping, and then you never stop, and then that doesn't really work. That's not how how we work. Instead, there's another part of the process which is breaks. It's it's oh, it's the disconnections, and it's those moments when we have a, a, a satisfaction, an, an experience of sensation. Uh, again, all of Deleuze's philosophy, all of Guattari's philosophy, is very much about this imminence of experience. We're talking about things happening. As they happen, not in a. They have an order to them because that's the easiest way to describe this stuff. But we're talking about things that happen inside of a plane of eminence, which is basically meaningless when it comes to time and all of that. But again, the the pipes moving along, which is the desire machines pumping desire, removing desire, connecting. And they're rubber pipes; they're flapping all over the place. What's missing in that is also as that's recorded, as I'm having that sensation and. Essentially, that is being remembered uh, or recorded on The Body Without Organs. I'm moving on The Body Without Organs. I, I, My subjectivity is moving around this space. And it's moving around this space based on the way I understand the relations between things to be. Now, there is no direct intentionality in the sense of a direct cause and effect, or I do this, or the design machines are making me do this. That's not the way they're talking about it. They're talking about what is the impetus between how desire works and moves through us. And as we move around on the body without organs, as they later get into, we're moving between the relations of the signs and full objects that we've come in contact with as we understand them to be. So there is a, uh, the coordinates on the body without organs are essentially our view of the world. And we have, uh, I don't want to say we have the ability to move around on them, but that's what we're doing is moving around on them, uh sort of with the subjectivity being created after the fact um we, this will be a discussion we're going to get into again later in in the book uh s- chapter two uh they get significantly more in depth about the direct functionality of this so i would like to save a lot of that discussion for them um uh, we're down to our last uh two two pages um so um, i'm gonna finish up uh this next paragraph and Three more, so I'm going to see if I can get through them and then we'll have a larger discussion. Kind of like it. The decoding of flows and the deterritorialization of the socius thus constitutes the most characteristic and the most important tendency of capitalism. It continually draws near to its limit, which is a genuinely schizophrenic limit. It tends, with all the strength at its command, to produce the schizo as the subject of the decoded flows on the body without organs. More capitalist than the capitalist, more proletarian than the proletariat. This tendency is being carried further and further, to the point that capitalism, with all its flows, may dispatch itself straight to the moon. We really haven't seen anything yet. When we say that schizophrenia is our characteristic malady, the malady of our era, we do not merely mean to say that modern life drives people mad. It is not a question of a way of life, but a process of production, nor is it merely a question of a simple parallelism, Even though, from the point of view of the failure of codes, such a parallelism is much more precise formulation of the relationship between, for example, the phenomena of shifting of meaning, in the case of schizophrenic, and the mechanisms of ever-increasing disharmony and discord at every level of industrial society. I'm just going to continue the next paragraph because it flows. What we are really trying to say is that capitalism, through its process of production, produces an awesome schizophrenic accumulation of energy or charge against which it brings all its vast powers of repression to bear, but which nonetheless continues to act as capitalism's limit. For capitalism constantly counteracts, constantly inhibits this inherent tendency, while at the same time allowing it free reign. It continually seeks to avoid reaching its limit while simultaneously tending toward the limit. Capitalism institutes or restores all sorts of residual and artificial, imaginary, or symbolic territorialities. Therefore, by attempting as best it can to recode, re channel persons who have been defined in terms of abstract quantities. Everything returns or recurs, states, nations, families. That is what makes the ideology of capitalism, quote, a motley painting of everything that has ever been believed. The real is not possible. It is simply more and more artificial. Marx termed the twofold movement of the tendency to a falling rate of profit and the increase in the absolute quantity of surplus value, the law of the counteracted tendency. As a corollary of this law, uh, as a corollary, corollary of this law, there is the twofold movement of decoding or deterritorializing flows on the one hand, and their violent and artificial reterritorialization on the other. The more the capitalist machine deterritorializes, decoding and axiomatizing flows in order to extract surplus value from them, the more its ancillary apparatuses, such as government bureaucracies and the forces of law and order, do their utmost to reterritorialize absorbing in the process a larger and larger share of surplus of value.
4: Can can you define maybe re-territorialization re-ter- uh, and re-territorialization?
0: The, the simple way to do it would be it's it's an old uh, 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 ethnological uh, 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 term when talking about uh, the, the tribes that we ran into. It was a term used in like the 1700s, 1800s um, and in, into the 1900s a lot. And we'd run into these tribes and they have their territory. At some point, their territory essentially gets removed from them. And it's not so much even that they necessarily get removed from their territory, but a natural deterritorialization happens. As they are exposed to the outside world, they begin to understand that there's more than just the territory they were in or the edge of the world as far as they were concerned. Uh that is the kind of mentality we're talking about here when we say that capital as by nature uh deterritorializes and re-territorializes. So, uh, as capital sees a thing, let's let's talk about it as a social machine. A uh, good good example, a Tim and Eric. If anyone here has ever been a fan of Tim and Eric, I was. Tim and Eric once upon a time were deeply, deeply, deeply subversive. Uh, people were really actually upset. They were on Adult Swim. People did not like them. The stuff that they were doing was gross and uncomfortable to people. But at some point, that aesthetic actually proved. Uh, to be sticking around, started to generate money, and uh, Cheetos and KFC paid them a lot of money to do advertising, and suddenly the tannery aesthetic is kind of everywhere, and now part of the normal capitalist marketing infrastructure. That's a that is a deterri- that is a uh, deterritorialization and then reterritorialization as capital assumes what the edges were. Oh, you found something that that was just outside of the edges of what could make money and what we can exploit. Turns out, no. We found a way. Thank you. What capital does? A very simple version of it.
4: Sounds a lot like stealing. No, but it's, but it's as, as, Aside from that, I, I wanted to. Uh, uh, is is this also? Uh, maybe this is relevant right now. But is this also what leads to um, Mark Fisher's pre-incorporation?
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no. This is all leading into it. I want to say. Like this is all where a lot of Fisher's sort of everything comes from, um, for sure. But I, I want to just say, when we talk about capital territory reterritorializing, territorializing it's not about stealing. It's not about capital taking it. It's about the essence of that social machine or that technical machine being something that in theory is not a thing that can be exploited, but capital finds a way. It It's, it's able to, uh, we see the limit of capital. The internet gets made by DARPA. Great example of this happening. Uh, DARPA essentially is anti-production. There was no capital that was intended to be put into it. No one made a ton of money off the internet right away. It was originally a network for like people in government offices to communicate. And people started to figure out, oh, no, there's a way. This is not something that sits outside of capital. There's a way for us to make money doing it. And uh, that, it's not so much that it got stolen. It's that the concept no longer exists at the limit. It's... The nature of, uh, like I was talking about before when we talk about the body without organs, the the one you perceive as your body without organs, your Misha or, or Brooks, however it is, uh, the, the way that the BWO functions is you naturally can't see where the edge of what is possible for you is because it's the only thing that's within the realm of your experience. Something you haven't experienced can't be on your body without organs. So there's this, like, you don't know what you don't know kind of fact to it. Capital has that too. The Socius has that. It does. It's not like everything is just naturally part of capital. We find those edges and we push them and we maybe even think we're crossing them, but capital's like, cool, no, you're not doing that. I've figured out a way to, to take it over. Um, once upon a time, that would be the despot saying, I've reached the edge of my kingdom. Oh, look, there's more land. Now it's mine. Uh, Christopher Columbus being a good example of such a thing. Um, and so they're saying no this is now even in the technical machine or social machine sphere where we're talking about concepts and all kinds of stuff this is a the way that these things work and the way that these signs uh, get decoded axiomatized deterritorialized but but also crucially and
7: I didn't think it, you don't want to muddy it too much cuz they get into this later but like it, it would be good if we don't we shouldn't just think of it as like all oh, the this because you can get stuck in that thing of like authenticity of like oh well the state is always just like capturing these things and re-territorializing them like one of the points they make that is almost similar to like a classic marxist point is that thing of like well the, the problem and the scary thing about capitalism is that it works by doing both like it in the very in the very move that it deterritorializes it re-territorializes afterwards so or, or simultaneously so like you can't have you know the the liberation of the peasants in like the Russian feudal system to become free wage laborers without their simultaneous re-territorialization into exploited you know an exploited proletarian class or whatever. So like even in, in a way like they end up talking about it like deterritorialization is is a necessary um it's not just that deterritorialization territorialization if I can say that word happens outside of the state and outside of capitalism and capitalism just re-territorializes things like Capitalism and capital unleash codes, and that they work by constantly creating the possibility for those things to be unleashed and be decoded. And there's there's a sense of like what they talk about is that previous social systems, you know, allegedly in their framework, always had a way of preventing this ultimate like endless decoding. Whereas the unique thing about capitalism is that it's 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 a decoding without end, a de-territorializing, re-territorializing, but it doesn't ever consummate into anything. It's not ever reset or shut down in some kind of jubilee or whatever it might be it continually is happening so uh there's a way in which we could even look at it like again even in the wage labor the capital labor relationship itself the way that the the labor value is the possibility of making it having free unattached laborers you know in the first place that is a kind of deterritorialization. but then their re-territorialization as you know kind of indentured subjects almost tied to specific you know, context of life and specific companies and whatever, you know, the, the classic Marxist critique of the injustice of wage slavery and stuff. So there's, there's an aspect where it's, it's like, again, it's integral to all of this stuff.
0: So uh, consider what I was saying, basically baby's first anti-Oedipus and what Alyosha was saying is a much more correct and specific version of it. It's a really good breakdown. Um, I'm going to read the final paragraph. And, uh, there is no doubt that this point in history, the neurotic, the pervert, and the psychotic, cannot be adequately defined in terms of drives, for drives are simply the desiring machines themselves. They must be defined in terms of modern territorialities. The neurotic is trapped within the residual or artificial territorialities of our society, reducing all of them to Oedipus as the ultimate territoriality, as reconstructed in the analyst's office and projected upon the full body of the psychoanalyst. Yes, my boss is my father, and so is the chief of state, and so are you, good doctor. The pervert is someone who takes the artifice seriously and plays the game to the hilt. If you want them, you can have them, territorialities infinitely more artificial than the ones that society offers us, yet uh, totally artificial new families, secret lunar societies even. As for the schizo, continually wandering about, migrating here, there, and everywhere as best he can, he plunges further and further into the realm of deterritorialization, reaching the furthest limits of the decomposition of the socius on the surface of his own body without organs. It may well be that these peregrinations are the schizo's own particular way of rediscovering the earth. The schizophrenic deliberately seeks out the very limit of capitalism. He is inherent. He is its inherent tendency brought to fulfillment, its surplus product, its proletariat, and its exterminating angel. He scrambles all the codes and is the transmitter of the decoded flows of desire. The real continues to flow. In the schizo, the two aspects are, of process are conjoined the metaphysical process that puts us in contact with the demoniacal element in nature or within the heart of the earth, and the historical process of social production that restores the autonomy of desiring machines in relation to the deterritorialized social machine. Schizophrenia is desiring production as the limit of social production. Desiring production and its difference in regime as compared to social production are thus endpoints, not points of departure, Between the two there is nothing but an ongoing process of becoming that is the becoming of reality, and if materialist psychiatry may be defined as the psychiatry that introduces the concept of production into consideration of the problem of desire, it cannot avoid posing in eschatological terms the problem of the ultimate relationship between this analytic machine, the revolutionary machine, and desiring machines. The last point I want to make here, and it's really, I think, the point of this final paragraph, and it's what I've tried to say many times, and I will continue. Uh, the goal of this is not to lionize the schizophrenic. Mental illness is not a joke. It's actually terrifying. as Our disconnections from reality are scary. However, what we're talking about here is the process of schizophrenia, how, how schizophrenia works, how it places a person within relation to the world, and how they digest it, how they digest it as they go. Uh, All of this, as they look through, is about not the neurotic, not about the pervert. It's about the process of what a pervert is into and how his desiring machines work. It's about the neurotic. It's about the schizo and how his desiring machines work. Uh, The lionization is not in the schizophrenic. The lionization is in the unique way that the schizophrenic is able to process all of this and handle it, actually, and move around inside of this. Final paragraph or this section. Uh, before we sign off on this incredibly uh you know it's solidly long i appreciate all of you sticking around jesus uh hopefully it's been interesting and uh i'm going to go ahead and uh, finish up the recording thank all of you for joining us uh we will see you next time uh, same time same place we will be moving into 1.5